What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Breakthrough Society podcast. I'm your host, Irvin, and today we have my good friend, Mr. Tony Watley, on the show. Um, Tony, man, Tony's Tony's a lot of things. He's a entrepreneur, very successful man, a best-selling author of the book that I actually need to read. Um, it's called Side Hustle Millionaire. Um, he worked in oil and gas industry for many, many years. Um, and then he, he took his leap or while he was working in the, in the industry, he, uh, went ahead and, and created his two side businesses of building a community of car, car, um, fanatics. And he went on selling those businesses and now he has a coaching group community group called the 365 driven community um you guys i'm gonna link that up but i mean tony's a very successful man he knows his stuff so the bombs that he drops in this episode are not to be overlooked um so you guys definitely want to want to go ahead and start taking notes um Especially if, if if you're somebody that wants to start something new, um, something that requires you to, you know, change, uh, some that requires you to do something different from, say, what your family's been doing for so many years, you know, going to college, getting a good job. Um, if you don't want to do that and you want to take the entrepreneurial, you know, start a business route, um, you would definitely want to take note of what Tony, um, of the, of the value that Tony drops in this uh, episode because i think or not i think i know that um it would definitely help you so with that being said guys let's get to it all right guys so before we get into the show with tony wally i'm gonna link up all his contact info in the description i'm gonna link up his book on amazon you guys go and check it out you know i'm gonna read it myself i actually already have it i just haven't read it <laughs> but um i'm gonna go ahead and link up everything also go over to facebook and ig type in the breakthrough society movement um join our facebook group like our pages um also i dude i know you'll get some value from this you know especially if you're somebody in your early stages of business um or or somebody that's that's about to take that leap into it um go share this episode with somebody you know uh, needs that change needs that mindset change you know tony's very um direct about you know having that mindset changed and, and you know doing all that kind of kind of uh, personal development stuff so share this with the person you know that needs it and with that being said guys let's get to it yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mr. Tony Wally, welcome to Break the Society, man. How are you? Hey, Irvin. Good to see you, man. Thank you for the invite on the show. Can't wait to help you guys get some value out of this episode. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for coming on on a Sunday. Hey, man, you know, that's what we do. We don't sit yeah. around on weekends and do nothing, right? It's you got to fit it in where you can get it in, and Sunday happens to be it for us. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Cool. So, for the audience that the people out there that don't know who you are man just tell just kind of like a quick overview of, of who you are and what you do well I'm, nowadays i would say that i'm a business and executive coach i work with seven and eight figure business owners to help them on a personal level and also to help their business so I'm, I'm good at starting scaling and exiting businesses i've done that for myself and prior to that i say my career over 20 years was in project management and engineering for the major oil gas operators and back then i was managing projects to the size of probably about 200 million dollars budget so big projects international a lot of red flags a lot of different countries and regulations and all these different things and teams of 75 to 100 people and you know i was in a near death accident in 2015 i raced cars and after that accident, I realized that I could have been doing a lot more with my life than just chasing that executive path in corporate. So, you know, I've been a business owner on the side. I love cars, like I said, and I built some of the largest online communities that exist. They still exist today, ls1tech.com. And 
performancetrucks.net. Both of those combined over 500,000 registered members, and we sold those in 2007 for millions. So uh, I know you're out of the woodlands. Like, did you did you always did you grow up? Did, were you born in that in that um, area your whole life? I was actually born in Japan. My mother's mm -hmm. Japanese. And my dad was in the Vietnam War, and he was a Marine, and uh, he was stationed in Japan. And after I was born, and probably about two, age two, I moved to California for about six, seven months while he was in Camp Pendleton. And then we came to Houston when he got out of the military. Nice. So then after, you just you were just raised in the Houston area the whole life? Yeah, I grew up in Friendswood, Texas, a small town mm -hmm. when I was there. It was about 15,000 15, people back then. It's probably 100,000 people now. It's blown up. But... So yeah, I, I grew up, uh, you know, the best way to describe my childhood was watching that movie Friday Night Lights. You know, when the whole town shuts down because of football games and, you know, I played football there and they treated us a little bit different if we were players. I mean, here's how funny thing is, is like you could be drunk at age 16 back then and driving home from a party. <laughs> and if you got pulled over and the cops realized that you're one of the players, they would they would threaten to just tell the coach that was actually the worst punishment. And they would just tell, you know, as drive you home. So, you know, it was a whole lot different <laughs> world back then. You know, I'm 48 out of context. So, yeah, it's terrible to think about that now, but that's how small town was back then. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> the football players back then, they were just, like, the royalty. Yeah. They were, like, the celebrities. Haircuts, discounted hamburgers, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff. But it was, like, literally the whole town would shut down on Friday nights to go watch the game. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into the, like, the oil and gas industry? Or like uh, after high school, how did you say, oh, well, that's what I want to go do? Well, I, I didn't grow up with any money. And my mom was a cafeteria worker in the public schools her entire life. And my dad worked in the refineries, chemical plants here in town when he got out of the military, his rest of his his career. And so I learned the value of have hard work. They, they always encouraged me to go make money. So I was the kidpreneur we had called nowadays. So I was the one that was washing cars, mowing lawns. Uh, walking dogs, raking leaves, whatever I could to make money. I would, I'd actually go to the corner store. We called the, it was like a stop and go is what they called it back then. And I would buy boxes of blow pops and Jolly Ranchers and I would take them to school and I'd put them in these little individual Ziploc bags like a drug dealer and I would sell them and <laughs> double my money. So even as a kid, I was doing that just because that's how I was able to afford skateboards and BMX bikes and video games and things that I liked because my parents weren't going to get it to me. I already knew that I was only going to get gifts on my birthday and in Christmas, and I'm born in November. So literally, there's only a two-month back-to-back months that I would get a gift each year. I was like, well, I need to go figure something out. And I was too young to get a job at that point. So they always tell you back then is if, if you want to go make six figures, they give you a couple choices. They say, hey, you can go be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And I was like, well, let me think about those. Maybe a lawyer, because I'm pretty good at arguing and talking back to people. So maybe a lawyer. And I said, well, maybe... Doctor, no, I don't want to deal with sick people and injured people and see blood and gore. And I was like, not interested at all. Engineer, okay, I like cars. I've always been a car fanatic, even as a kid. And so I so, said, well, maybe there's something in engineering I can do to go get a you know, work in cars, do something with the automotive industry. And so mechanical engineering is what I pursued. And, you know, and, and my dad at age 18, he's like, hey, do you want to go to college? I was like, yeah. And he's like, get a job or join the military. Because I'm not paying for it. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I ended up working in chemical refineries just like he did and waiting tables on the weekends and working as a mechanic in some of the shops around here. And that's how I paid for school. It took me seven years. And here's the thing is when I finally graduated, it took, you know, it took me a long time to do that because I was going to school at night and just working full time. I started to apply to the big three. And back then we just did phone interviews. So I was talking to the different companies in the Detroit area and listening to the salaries. I was like, man, this is, this is some bullshit salaries here, like low. And you had to go move to Detroit, which sucks. And, and I said, okay, well, let me just explore the oil industry since Houston is the capital it's the oil capital of the world, basically. And they literally were paying double, you know, to well. stay in, so I get to stay in my home city, make double the money. And I could actually afford to drive the cars that I would go work on a design. Right. I was like, cool. I can actually own these cars now. So that's why I ended up in the oil industry. It's really just a, it was a higher income and it was able for me to stay in my home city. Yeah, dude, that's the fact that they pay double in your home city, like you're already there. That's yeah, that's a win. Like, <laughs> I'm here. I already know everywhere and I, I know I enjoy it here. And, 
I mean, Houston's the fourth largest city in the in the country. Yeah. And, you know, we have far more restaurants and everything's spread out. We're not living on top of each other. And, you know, it's just a, yeah, it gets hot, but it never gets cold. So there's a good trade-off there. So we have an amazing car scene. So I think of all the big cities out there, Houston and LA actually have the two largest car scenes in the world. I mean, it's huge. Like people don't realize how big of a car scene is in here in Houston. But when you start to look at the design of our roads, you start to understand it's like, everything in Houston is straight and flat and the highways are really good. So there's a lot of people hauling ass. Like everybody gets a comment, they visit Houston. They're like, man, you guys drive fast. Like, like people drive 10 to 15 over all the time. Even little grandmas are driving fast. Like everybody's just hauling ass to get where they go. And I don't know, I mean, it's just like culture here and you go to LA or San Francisco, it's the complete opposite. Everybody's like giving each other a lot of space and they're like, you know, letting people cut in and it's like <laughs> not in a hurry to get anywhere. It's, it's hilarious. Like, so when a Houstonian goes and visits the the Silicon Valley, you can literally just weave in and out of cars, like in haul ass cause everybody's doing the speed limit and leaving like three cars in between everybody. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like I, I get with the, with the Houston, like the, the highways are just straight. Like in the, in the, what's the, the, the highway that goes around. Oh, the loops. Yeah. The different yeah, loops, the loop. 99 and yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get a lot of a lot of straight straight shot there just to fucking haul ass and yeah. wherever it is that you're going. There's certain areas that you can't, but most of the part, yeah, I get it. It's just straight. Yeah, back when I was doing stupid things, probably six, seven years ago, and and earlier, yeah, most of us were running around these thousand plus horsepower sports cars and and making hits on the the tollways because there's nobody out there. There's no entrances, no exits. So there's pretty safe for other people. So we we're basically just putting our own lives in our hands at that point. But, you know, it was pretty common to hit over 200 miles per hour on some of these roads. You know, we, that's why you always see the people, we call it Mexico. Like, Oh, we're going to Mexico. That way when they can put on YouTube, they won't let, you know, have any location, but that was, that was all in the Houston tollways. And and we had this big event (laughs) called Texas 2k that comes in here every year. And it's usually in March. And all the people with the fastest street cars in the country show up and they all just take over the tollways. It's crazy. I mean, there's a lot of crazy, stupid stuff. I mean, a lot of stupid people with high horsepower, but yeah, everybody's doing 200 plus miles per hour on the tollway. But it's like you said, it's long, straight. I mean, these are, yeah. these tollways are 20 miles long and they're perfectly straight. They're three lanes wide. There's no entrances or exits for several miles in, in some areas. And so people are just doing stupid shit in those things. <laughs> Yeah, dude. So, uh, like, I, I've seen a couple of those videos where they're like, oh, we're racing to Mexico. And I'm like, dude, that does not look like fucking Mexico. <laughs> and uh, whoever posted it, like, the account says something Houston or H-Town Racing or some shit like that. Yep. And it says, and this is like location Mexico. And yep. <laughs> bro, that does not look like Mexico. Yeah, they got to be careful not to put the, the highway signs in those videos because mm. people have been busted by saying, you know, track location. Like, here it is, judge. Like, here's the video of them doing this. And you can see the speedometer, and there's the sign for this exit. Like, that's where they were. They even posted yeah. the day that they did it, you know? Yeah. Like you you've always been uh you've always been into cars. Always. I, I don't know why. I think we're just kind of born into it. I I know that my grandfather and my dad both enjoyed performance cars, but they didn't do the craziness that I did. They they would go buy a Camaro or a 442 or a Malibu Chevelle and they would just drive it, right? They would own it, but they would never modify things or ever go to the racetrack. And that's probably because they just didn't have the money to do that, but they just, they enjoyed muscle cars, but they didn't race them and modify them. And, and actually when I first started doing that, my dad would say, well, why are you ruining a perfectly good car? You just bought it and you're doing all this stuff. You're ruining it. Like it's, it's going to avoid the warranty. He's always worried about that kind of stuff, you know? And I, dude, even as a kid, my mom would buy me coloring books probably, you know, when I was a really young kid. And and I remember while she was cooking dinner, I would sit at the kitchen table and instead of coloring the books, I would actually just draw cars and all the blank spaces in the, in the front and the back <laughs> covers of the book. So eventually she started noticing I was just drawing things rather than coloring the book. And she would just give me blank sheets of paper. And then my dad, when he was working at the chemical plant, he'd bring home nut and bolt washers. So I had a collection of washers, different sizes, circles. And I'd use those to trace the wheels and the, and the tires and make different sizes and truck size ones and race car size ones. And I can make the, the rims. And so, yeah, I was doing that like even like four or five years old. So I don't know why I've always been fascinated, but anything really mechanical. So 
I liked army tanks and World War II aircraft and, and cars. I just like anything that was a machinery that was about speed or motion, I was really fascinated with. So like whatever, so I mean, like being in the in the oil industry, like I'm guessing like you liked all that machinery stuff, you know, that's why you were there or one part of the, you know, one reason why you were there. So whenever you made that leap of quitting that, was that something that was an easy choice for you? No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. I actually thought about it for several years, but the thing is, is that we get trapped into our careers, right? A lot of us end up working careers and just because we're good at something doesn't mean that we should be doing that kind of stuff. Like, cause it's not something that resonates with me, although it was really good. And they, they compensated me to prove that I was making over $200,000 a year in salary. I always had this negative voice in my head about wasting my degree because I, I paid for my own degree. It took me seven years. You heard that part. And even my mom, you know, she really valued education as a Japanese woman in her generation, the women basically finished junior high and they got plucked out of the school system to go work in the farms. So she always valued education to give you guys an idea of how much discipline I grew up with. I didn't miss a single day of school from kindergarten through graduation. I didn't miss a single day. And if, and if I wasn't dead, I was getting on that bus. And that's how much my mom valued education. And you hear about these things with the Asian moms and that's who I had, you know, my dad was the Marine Sergeant. So I got the discipline from the other side, from that side, you know, the leadership and doing what's right and showing up and being respectful and being on time. That was all dad. Right. But it's, how, how do you go from that? It, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing that I just grew up with that way, man. That's cool. So like, uh, when, when I guess like how far along, whenever you were already in the oil industry, like how far along did you say, well, like, let me just start the side business, which was the communities that you built. Yeah. yeah that's a great question. Here, here's the thing is that a lot of times you get into corporate and they use your age against you, whether you're too young or too old, right? Early in my career it was too, you're too young to do this. And later in my career, when I'm in my forties, you start to hear the other way around, like that you're getting paid too much. They want to lay you off anytime there's a industry downturn because they can just have someone that's 10 years younger than you keep your seat warm while you sit on the bench. And when the, when the market returns, maybe you're still sitting on the bench. They can hire you at a little discounted rate and you can come back to work. So the sweet spot of your career, especially in the engineering field is in, when you're in your late twenties to your thirties, you know, when you hit that 40 mark and you're starting to get in the, the middle six figures, you actually start to become, you know, disposable. I hate to say that, but I was on that hiring side. I had to make those tough calls. I, I understand. I saw this hundreds and hundreds of times. And when I was younger, it was, you're too young to be the manager. You're too young to be, uh, to manage this kind of money. And so I remember one of my earlier mentors, his name was Joe. He would teach me everything he did. He was my project manager. I was a project engineer at the time. And he would teach me all these different things. And I, he, I would show, I would demonstrate, I can excel and do these things. And he was like, man, you got this. Cause I've always been a high performer. I've always been someone that would push myself to take on more responsibilities, do more than I'm paid to get done, you know, being paid to do it. That way I can get paid more to do what I do. And so I've always had that just trying to be the top level achiever and, and it's just who I am, it's who I, how I was raised. And so he had a lot of confidence in me. And then when he got, he got actually recruited to go work for Shell, he told the people that we were working at, he's like, Hey, this guy, I've trained him for two years. He can do my job. Like I know he's young, but he can do my job, but it was an international company. It was French owned and they're like, oh, nobody in their, you know, mid twenties can be a project manager in our company. We're a multi-billion dollar company. And the youngest project manager we have is 35. And, and, and Joe would be like, I don't care what their ages are. I've trained him. He's doing most of my job already. He can do it. Like, and so I got told that I had to wait my turn and I'm too young. Okay. And I said, okay, cool. I know how to play the game. I'll just play the game. They brought in an external person to be my boss. I had to train this guy to be my boss. <laughs> he lasted about six months. And then another guy came in, another older guy. He was probably in his mid forties and I had to train him to be my boss. And he lasted about a year. And then finally I went to the director and I said, Hey, if I had to train another one of my bosses, I'm just going to leave. And they said, well, we can't lose you. So what's it going to take? I was like, well, just give me the role guys. I mean, two years ago, you, you already knew that I could do this stuff. And so they did. So I was, about 26 at the time, 27. And they said, okay, we'll give you a shot. And actually I opened up the door for that entire international organization for people that my age could be capable 
And we started to see some of the younger people in their 20s actually start to take on that role that could actually demonstrate they did that stuff. So I, I got tired of that hitting the wall, hitting that fake glass ceiling, being told to wait my turn and knowing that I could run circles around people. So I started looking for external ways to use my creativity, build some more authority, have some decision making. And for me, that was building those side businesses because I needed a creative outlet. I want to be able to control my own destiny and just do the things that I was learning and apply them where they would benefit me because the company obviously didn't want me to benefit them. They're just telling me to hold on and wait my turn. So that's that was the main drive. I just needed an external thing. I was such a busybody that, you know, most people get home at five o'clock in the afternoon and they, they sit on the couch and they watch TV and they eat dinner and they go to bed. And for me, it's like after going through seven years of full-time construction work outside in Texas and going to school at night and sleeping three hours and then waiting tables on the weekends. Like that was that whole 24 seven hustle and grind shit that we hear about. I hated that yeah. life, I, but that was the only thing I could do to be able to do what I needed to do. But when I got out of that, I felt like my 40 hour a week engineering job was a part-time job. I was like, dude, what is this getting home at four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon thing? And like not having anything to do. It's like, what is this? This is lame. So I actually put on my apron and went and waited tables. So here I am with an engineering degree, an engineering salary. I was still going back to the restaurants and picking up shifts seven days a week because I wasn't where I wanted to be. And and most people are really unwilling to do what it takes to get where they want to be. They're just, they talk about it. They say they want these things. They build a vision board. They, they know all the things they would like to buy, right? They can visualize that. But then you go, hey, would you put in a way to, you know, would you put an apron on? Like go wait tables with your engineering degree, with your engineering career. Oh, no, no, I'm too good for that. I got a degree now. I got a salary. I'm a big boy. Like, why would I ever go do that? Like, no way. You know, and actually had people at the waiting, you know, the, the restaurant be like, man, why do you still work here? You know, you got an engineering degree. You got a job. You got a salary. It's like, well, because I'm not where I want to be. Like, this is an alternative for me to do that. So that just led to me starting companies, dude. And, you know, the, I, I just... I just don't like excuses. You know, most people just talk a lot and they, they say things and I'm like, okay, what are you doing right now? Or I don't have time for this. And you know, I, I don't have, to, it's like, let me see your calendar. Oh, uh, what, what calendar? <laughs> like you don't have a calendar. You say you don't have time. How do you know if you don't have time, if you're not measuring the time that you have? Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, I never thought about that. It's like, well, then you're not really trying hard. You're not doing what it takes. And you know, that's always been my thing. So like, how do I get where I want to get? How do I define those tasks? What is that going to take? And am I really honest with myself? Am I willing to do what it takes? And if the answer is no, then I just don't do it. If, it, if the answer is yes, then I go all in. There's no like half ass in there. Yeah. And it's like, it's key. It's gold. What you said with the, that you were, you're waiting tables with your engineering degree, with the salary job. And a lot of people are like that shit hurts their ego. <laughs> like they, like how you're saying, like, oh, man, you know, I'm a big boy now. Like, I can't be doing that shit. Can't be seen there. Like, but it's just it's just how bad you want it or how, how bad you want to, you know, do your business or create your business or whatever it is that you want to do. Absolutely, man. I remember there would be some of my coworkers from the engineering job would come into that restaurant once in a while. It was a nice place. It was a steakhouse, mm -hmm. had, a, had a microbrewery. I used to be a manager at that point when I was in school. And. I didn't want to go back as a manager because the hours didn't fit my schedule. And also I couldn't make quick cash as a waiter or as a bartender. And so I would just go back in and pick up shifts. You know, I did, they, being a former manager, I had a, a privilege that they didn't have to put me on a schedule. You know what I mean? So I had the option and anytime I got home just to put on my apron and just go and pick up shifts. Cause there's always waiters that want to go home or get drunk or go smoke weed. And it's easy to pick up shifts. So I could go make a hundred, 150 bucks a night just by doing that instead of sitting on the couch. And you know, but I would see these coworkers from the engineering career. They would come in. They go, "Well, hey, Tony, what are you doing here?" And I was like, "Well, picking up shifts. I used to be a manager here. I, I'm, you know, I'm just making extra money." Oh, wow. You know, aren't you an engineer? Like, you know, these these people make less than me at that job. You know, and and they're like, they're just blown away that I could go. I would go do that because, like you said, it's like the ego thing. They're so worried about what people think about them that they could just never do that or. I've never been wired that way. I just, you know what, if people want to make fun of me or talk shit, then they're usually doing a lot less than me. 
or they're afraid that I'm doing more than them or I'm going to pass them. So they try to hold you back. So the whole holding me back thing, you hear this theme com comes around. Like anytime someone says I can't do something or they challenge me or, or they don't believe in me, uh, I'm always the, that actually like adds fuel to my fire. Like anytime that someone that just doesn't see that, you know, why is he doing this? And this, like, like, I like that stuff, man. It's like, sit, send me more of that, please. Yeah, dude, I get that for sure. Because, <laughs> like, uh, same thing, like, with people are, like, by age, right? Like, I'm 26, so a lot of people are just still fucking off and getting drunk on the weekends and, and partying and doing all this shit. And, like, whenever I used to live there in Houston, up, up until January, and then I moved to Austin, like, just randomly, like, out of, out of nowhere, you know, a lot of people were like, dude, why'd you move? Like, you already had your clients in Houston. Like, well, why'd you move up to Austin? Like, why? Like, they just they just don't get it, right? And like how you're saying, how you were saying earlier, like, if you want to do something, you can do it. Like, you go all in, right? So that's what I wanted to do. Like, I just said, fuck it. I'm moving. And a lot of people are like, man, I don't know why he moved and this and that. <laughs> and I was just like, dude, like, I, I really don't care. <laughs> I'm doing yeah. that for me. Dude, here's the thing about decisions. Most people think decisions are final. You can oh, always yeah. move back. I could always go back and get another job. I mean, it's yeah. like like people hold up so much on progress by not making decisions because they think that they're final. You know, it's like, dude, a decision made today only leads to more decisions tomorrow. So you can always take the different fork in the road. Like there's always going to be an option to take later on. So don't ever think that your decisions are final. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make. Yeah. I think, I think it's uh, Gary Vee, the one that says that, where you can you can always change your mind or yeah. something like that. Like, like uh, if, if one day he says, you know, like, that he's not going to do whatever in business, and then the next day he says, oh, we're going to change that, we're actually going to do it, because, you know, now I thought of another way or whatever. That's, that's, a, that's what we call it, being a thought leader. Most people hear that, but they don't know what that means. And I'd say that the best reference to understand what a thought leader is, is to go read a classic book, Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's one of my favorites. It's a really difficult book to read because it's written in the early English, you know, where they use really high level vocabulary and you're supposed to read one sentence at a time and just absorb the sentence and go, what does that mean to me? It reads a lot like the Bible where you're supposed to read a sentence, translate that the best way you can, absorb it, think about it, and then move on to the next sentence. So when you get this book in the mail, it's pretty thin and you're like, oh man, I'm going to blow through this thing. And <laughs> that little thin book will kick the crap out of you. One, it's in really small print and then each sentence is very powerful. So you it's, it's a, it's a different way of reading. Most people are used to just reading as fast as they can and consuming the things that are high level. But this, this book really will make you think of a thought leader. So the summary of that is that, like you said, a thought leader is someone who is very bold and will defend their, their current perspective right? Whatever it is today, whatever you believe today, you're going to defend it and you're going to give some data and some realize, you know, here, here's why I believe this. Here's the evidence. Here's the things that I've learned. And, and, and I believe this. And then tomorrow you may have a new experience. You may have new revelations. You may have new exposings, you, just data, like everything's always changing. So you may actually have a different set of, set of data that comes in and go, you know what? I believe that yesterday. But today, given this new information, I believe this, and you're equally firm about that. And most people avoid doing that because they don't want to be called wishy-washy or, you know, flip-flopper, all these things that are labeled. Those are labels created by sheep, by the way, because a, a sheep person, which is the vast majority, I hate to tell you, they all hold on to their old perspectives and their old personas and their old reputations because even if they don't truly believe the things that they're repeating today, they're going to keep doing that because they're so worried about what the rest of the sheep will say about them. You know, so like a good example would be maybe in politics, you know, we just came out of an election year. Let's say that, let's say that there's a, a Republican that thinks more Democrat, right? And everything that he sees on the Democratic agenda, he's like, you know, I believe that. I believe this and I believe that. But, oh, hell no, I'm never going to be a Democrat. Like, no way. Like, I'm a, I'm a Republican. I was raised in a Republican house. Like, and my friends would hate me and my parents would hate me. So they're going to say, like, I'm a Republican. Like, and vice versa. You can move that either, either direction. But that's what a sheep does. They basically just hold on to their old way of thinking and their old perspectives because they're so worried about being judged or criticized or what the other sheep are going to think. So they just pretend they still believe in the shit they do. You can apply this to religion. You can apply this to anything. 
anything that you have a really firm belief in, you should always challenge that and go, why do I believe that? Where did it come from? Who taught me that? Does this really align with my agenda? Is this really going to get me where I want to go? Why, why do I still believe this stuff? Right. And if you start to be more aware and challenge those beliefs, every one of them you have, because most of them we grew up with that we never challenged because when we're young, we absorb everything like a sponge and we're listening to our parents, our teachers, our friends, our, our, our immediate society. And we just take those things as belief because we see people as authority roles, teachers, and they tell you something and you just nod your head like that must be true because they're older than me and they're authorities. And your parents tell you shit like time is money and things like that. And you believe it like, oh, cool. My mom and dad said that so that they would never lie to me. So I must believe that you, you're embedded with all these beliefs that don't even align with where you want to go. You should always challenge everything you believe. And when you discover your truth, you should be willing to say, like, this is what I believe now. And that's what a thought leader is. And thought leaders change the world. The sheep, they never change shit. So always be the thought leader and challenge yourself and have the courage and the bravery to put it out there. Because if you don't, you're just a sheep. And that's how you break out of that, like the the society. Like that's how you break the, what do they call it? Like the, where you change like the generational wealth. You know, like you, you break that cycle of just being like in the job cycle or the world or whatever and you go out and you fucking change the trajectory of your whole generation after you like you you challenge all those things that that you're saying like your mom taught you your dad taught you your your uh, teachers you're like man that is that right or is that wrong like and you just kind of like create your own path after that yeah it's fun it's actually fun when you gain that level of awareness where you can step out and see a little bit bigger picture and like how everything works and that's what we call wisdom, right? As you start to age and you have more experiences, you're able to step further and further away and see a bigger and bigger picture of how this decision can interact with this part of your life and affect this thing 10 years down the road, right? You start to see like the mistakes you made and where they led you because when you don't have the wisdom, you, you just live in that mistake and you don't, you're not really aware of where it's going to end up five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. So wisdom is all about just being able to see like, Oh, now I know why I'm here because I did that. Or now I know why I'm not here because I didn't do that. Right. So when you're young, you don't have that. That's why you hire mentors and coaches and learn from people who have made those mistakes. And that's how we really think about like coaching and, and, and groups that you learn from with people experiences. You're, you're paying for mistake avoidance, which will shave off years of your life and maybe millions of dollars in mistakes. If you just learn from people's mistakes and actually take notes and, just don't do that stuff. But you can be egotistic and be like, well, I want to be self-made and I don't want to spend money and I'm going to figure this out because I figure everything out. You know what? Everybody likes to figure things out that's driven. We all like to try to figure things out. And there's a lot of times we do get punched in the face and we fall flat on our face and we lose money and we waste years of our time and business doing the wrong things. Or we partner with the wrong people. Like we make mistakes, but the people who are going to get there faster are the ones who shortcut the process by hiring people who have taught them what they fucked up in, how to avoid that. Yeah, that goes back to like the ego thing of like, oh, I want to be, how are you saying? I want to be self-made or I don't want to hire. I don't want to pay for this. That way. <laughs> I used to think that way, man. I mean, I used to think that I was good at public speaking when I was working in corporate and because I'd built companies and made millions of dollars, I used to think like, well, I had a team of 75 on my team, on my, on my, my company. And I've led corporate things with hundred million dollars. I don't need public speaking training. I, I'm good at this. I have the occasional courage to stand in front of people and say things, but then you realize that once you actually start to do public speaking training, whether that's a Toastmasters or hire a speaking coach, you realize that having the occasional courage to stand in front of people to say things is nothing even close to what public speaking is. Public speaking is a whole array of skills and using your voice and influence and just having the storytelling skills and not saying the ums and the uhs and the distracting words that make you sound like you're less certain, less confidence or under underprepared. So there's a lot more strategies with public speaking as a skill that I had no idea about because I could have the occasional courage to stand in front of my team and go rah, 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 we're kicking off this job. And here's the things. And you start to realize that here's the, here's the real dean to the ego, Irvin. When you're a boss or you're a manager and you're speaking in front of people, they're a captive audience. They're not there to see you. They're not there to pay you, especially. They're 
they're there because you're the boss. So they can't go get up and take a piss break when the boss is speaking. They're not going to get on their phone and start surfing Instagram when the boss is speaking. So are you really good at public speaking or do you have a captive audience? There's a difference. A public speaker will have people pay to come listen to them, will sell tickets, will have people watch their videos, will show up to their events. Like there's a whole different array of skills that you have to learn. You're not going to figure this out by yourself. You have to learn this just like you were learning a new language. So that's kind of the ego thing that I had back then. It's like, well, I'm good at this. I don't need that training. Like I've, I've done this and that I'm a boss. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's having the lack of awareness that most people will just live with the rest of their lives. Cause they just think that they're, that they're good already. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. I, yeah. I think we all have like that, that moment too. Like sometimes like the, the ego fucking gets hurt when you're trying something new. We just gotta like be self-aware of, of being like, oh shit, you know, like I'm not all that. Like I need to, I need to go and learn this, dude. I just signed up for comedy school. I went last I saw that. <laughs> my first night, so I'm always looking for things to make myself uncomfortable, but also expand the skill set. Because with public speaking, it's never a bad thing to learn improv and actually learn how to react to audience and read audience. Because a lot of times, when you go speak you're interacting with the audience, right? It's not just always a stage and a microphone and a rehearsed speech. Sometimes you're, you're actually interacting with the, especially my own events. I'm, I'm taking Q and a and things like that. Having comedic skills is going to enhance that to make a better presentation for my attendees and give me more confidence to be able to think quicker on, on my feet and you know, have funnier responses when, when needed. So, you know, will I ever be on the stage doing improv comedy? Maybe. I'm not going to say no, because I never thought I would be on big stages with thousands of people either. I, I didn't really like being on stage. I, I had a lot of stage fright and insecurities, and I didn't like being on camera, and I didn't like all these things. So, again, I was good at speaking in front of my employees or my staff as as a role, as a leader, but I I was never feeling like I was an entertainer, and that that's like a whole level of higher level of vulnerability, putting yourself literally in the spotlight and being on a stage and, and being like there to entertain an audience or motivate an audience. That's a whole different level of pressure. And I had no interest <laughs> in that guys. I, I was scared of doing that. I didn't like doing videos. I didn't like doing any of that stuff. So I became successful without doing that and just hiding in the background. So I had to force myself to go do that. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I saw that post about the, the comedy, like the stage and all that. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Um, man, what was I going to say? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, I was, I was, uh, interviewing Dwight Heck yesterday and uh, yeah, he was telling me he wouldn't, he wouldn't shut up about you. He was, he was saying a bunch of good stuff about you and the, the group that you have going on. <laughs> so well, I'm going to give Dwight some love too, then, cause he'll probably hear this episode. Hey Dwight, you're awesome. And you're one of the best executors I know. You don't really hold back. And whenever you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that's amazing, dude. There's a lot, there's not that many people that do that nowadays. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, I was going to, I was going to ask about the the group you got going on the 365 driven with the sub big, big sign in the bag. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. 365 driven is an entrepreneurship community that I started to really think about what I wanted when I was younger, right? We always try to become the hero of our younger selves. And I became an entrepreneur, just largely learning lessons and getting punched in the face a lot because I didn't have anybody that was a business owner. I had nobody that was successful in either side of my family. I was the first one in my family to go to college. So my dad helped break that scene by moving us out of the trailer park. And we just kind of just kept doing things a little bit better and better and better. So I thought, man, it would have been nice to have mentors and people that knew what they were doing with business to teach me because I had just learned everything on my own. I mean, I, I started companies, I was making $10,000 a month before I even knew what an LLC was and what I needed to do. And I was still living off of spreadsheets and licking stamps to send invoices and all that kind of crap, you know? So it was like, I could have learned a lot better systems back then and done it a lot easier and made it a little bit less stressful, right? So I started the community because that's what I do. I build massive communities and you know, for 365 driven, it's like, well, I've only loved cars and entrepreneurship since I was a kid. So why don't I start an entrepreneurship group? And my group's a little bit different. I know there's a lot of overlap in the groups that are out there and everybody's got a different story and a different vibe, but really 
what I'm building is relationships because I want to make sure that everybody in my group, it becomes best friends. That's how I became successful with those other groups is it wasn't about me. I'm never going to be at the top of the mountain, just raising my hands. Like you guys are all here because I'm super awesome. And I'm Tony Watley and I'm bad at like, that's not me. I'm, I'm always better at the base of the, of the group and supporting the group. So I facilitate that by having the events and making sure that I build connections between each and every member. I make sure that I'm involved in the group, that I participate in the group and that I participate with my members because we also in some groups where you never see the leaders are present ever, you know, unless they're on a video or something, they're just never present. They don't even yeah. answer questions in their own group. They don't even reply in their own group. Like to me, that's like, is this really a, a group or is this a, is this a fan base? That's that, that's when it becomes a fan base. Right. And so I don't like to do that. It can be really well, that can, that can work really well when you're already a, a, a mega influencer and you have a fan base, you're just converting them into a air quotes group, but I build communities, not groups, right? Communities require strong bonds and communication lines between each and every member, not just a one way conversation. Like you're the top influencer. A lot of times people think about, followers and, and all this stuff. They're all fascinated by follower account. Like I don't give a shit about follower account because it's not about me. It's about the two way conversation. Like you're not here to like, listen to me and praise me and put me on a pedestal. It's not what I'm about. So I just, I'm very careful about who I align with. And I try to make sure that I'm facilitating a, a safe group. I don't like groups where people are allowed to talk shit and like get in each other's hair and like cause drama. Like I kick those people out. Like I just don't want any negative people in my group. Think about this. I built a group with 300,000 dudes that race cars. You don't think there's some ego or threats or, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an egotistical cesspool when you think about that, right? Yeah. Racers. I mean, come on, but we didn't tolerate it then. We just made sure, Hey, you guys can talk trash a little bit, but if you start threatening violence, and I'm going to come kick your ass or kill you. And like, no, your ass is gone. Like we don't tolerate that kind of stuff. And you know, the way your group behaves is a reflection of the leader. So if you see groups with shit talking going on and it's encouraged and, and the leaders, even shit talking people too, like in the group, that's a reflection of the lack of leadership that's in that group. No matter how many influencer or followers they may have, that's a lack of leadership. It's a lack of maturity. And I don't do that kind of stuff. So we just want to make sure that we keep it a, positive and, and a safe and enjoyable place to learn because we know that those with the most to contribute, the people with the real experience, I mean, there's literally billionaires in my group that most people don't even know. They're personal people I've met. They will never participate in a group that's full of shit talking and trash because why would they do that? So what happens is when you let all the low level shit talking people hang out in your group, it keeps the people that have actually have the value from wanting to participate. So I know that if I want the good people to participate, you got to make it where anyone can ask any question without being torn up about it, right? Yeah. And you just took like the your skill of building the communities in the car scene yep. over to the entrepreneur scene. Absolutely. It's it, it's it's worked a couple times and that's that's what I saw was missing was like why do these big groups have all this shit talking going on and it's and like like it's this is supposed to be cool this ain't cool, you know? It keeps all the good people sitting on the bench or hiding in the shadows. They don't even want to get on the field when the people are like that. Yeah. And I, I know like the, you just had a, an event, right? Like not too long ago. And now you have, you're having another one. Yeah. We're doing a event in November, November 16 through 19. It's going to be in Tucson, Arizona. We rented out a dude ranch and we also are going to have a, a day of racing cars because I have a lot of car people in my group from the, the build businesses that I built. And I know a lot of TV and, and media and stuff like that in the automotive scene and magazine editors. And so I've got a large automotive audience and we are going to round what used to be called Bondurant Racing School. Now it's called Radford Racing School where they have the Hellcat Challengers. So we're running out a day for people to have instructed driving, even if you're a beginner. And you want to go race 700 horsepower Hellcats? We're going to have instructors teaching you how to do slalom, autocross, skid pad, and, and the road course there. And, and it's, uh, it's going to be fun because it's going to be a lot of people out of their comfort zone. And that's what we like to do. Our events are usually three to four days. And we like to immerse people in building those relationships again. And not just talking about money and like how rich we are and flexing. Like, that's not what we do. I've been a part of those kind of meetings too, where I've gone to those and I was like, 
dude, everybody just sits around and talk about how rich they are and how many deals they got working. That, that's not, that's not community. I mean, that's, that's like a brag fest, you know, let's like show up and just brag and humble brag each other to death. Like that's fucking boring. Like I've been, what would people call rich? I've been rich for over 15 years now. It's like, I'm, I'm past that immaturity. Right. So my, my events are more like a vacation. I want to think about what do entrepreneurs want to do? My wife and I, we like to travel. We travel around the world. We do all kinds of crazy stuff. So why don't we just build a group that wants to go do that with us? You know, 50 people or less. We like to keep it small. I bring in former speakers that were on my show or people in my network and they learn some business. They learn some tactics, actual takeaways. I don't allow anybody to pitch from my stage. Nobody's like going, Hey, you know, sign up today and it's nine 97, but you got to sign up for today. And you know, like that's a bunch of horse shit. Like I don't do that. I bring in people who want to deliver value. I bring in people who want to actually build connections and build camaraderie and build networks. And we take them on things like we did whitewater rafting in Montana last, last event. And we hiked Glacier National Park. The previous event was in Utah. We hiked the, the Narrows and the Zion National Park, and we did these different activities. So I, I build vacations with my wife because I want to build memories and experiences. And then there's just one day of the speaking and the, the tactics and the business strategy. And we go do the exploration in the last two days. And the thing is, is that I know that a lot of entrepreneurs out there don't take enough vacation because maybe they say they can't afford it or, you know, it's a waste of time. So I squashed those two objections by creating a vacation that can actually business expense because it's an educational trip, just like a seminar or a conference. So you actually get to go take a vacation in a cool place, write it off, learn something, build an awesome network and build some memories that you can come bring your family and go do that and things and participate. So a lot different than what we see with the different events out there. Yeah, I tell you, dude. Like I, I, I haven't heard of one that's that's like that where it's you know you go learn some shit and it's a vacation and yeah. thing and you just go and have fun and, and dude, it's, it's the worst. Fun. It's the worst when you go to most conferences are at a cool city or a cool location, right? You're like, cool, I want to go visit there, but then you sit your ass in a boring ass hotel conference room for three days in a row and you don't even get to explore the city that you're in, like. How many times have I been? I can't even tell you how many times I'd fly in. You're like, oh, I want to visit the city. And then like the conference thing takes up three days. And usually by day two, you know, the half second day, halfway through, everybody's kind of tuned out and kind of bored anyways. It's like yeah. you see this, everybody's hanging out in the lobby versus in the in the room. And yeah. so you realize like, why don't we just do this one day? It seems like that's the tolerance level most people have. And they can really get a lot of impact in that one day. And then we can go explore the cool city that we're in and actually get some actually takeaways from where we're at. So we start to look at what are the other ones doing wrong and just try to fix what's and do it the right way. Mm, you find that uh, the missing the gap. Oh yeah. Dude. So, yeah. So before, uh, before I ask you this last kind of question that I have, just tell the audience where they can find you and everything you're doing. Yeah. My website is 365driven.com. So yeah, 365driven.com. Everything's there. Cool. So I'll, I'll link that up in the description, but the last, the last question I have is I know everybody has a couple of breakthrough moments, but what do you consider your most impactful breakthrough moment? I would say my entire life is a series of breakthrough moments and, and that's not being egotistical. It's, it's having the willingness to adapt and evolve, right? I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I signed off on a, on a post, you know how most people put their profession underneath their name? Well, I, here, here, I'll try to remember all the ones I put on there because this is how many times I've changed in my life. But I said, you know, Tony Watley, burger flipper, because my first job was McDonald's, burger flipper, busser, waiter, bartender, manager, junior engineer, middle manager, artist, photographer, editor, author, speaker, coach, like, I'm willing to change. And I think that that's being able to adapt and evolve is what most people are really afraid of because again, they're holding on to their old version of themselves and their old reputations and their old thinking, their sheep. I'm willing to go, you know what? I'm, that doesn't serve me anymore. I'm more interested in doing this and I'm willing to go all in and go do something like that. So you know, when, when my peers and my colleagues saw me leave my corporate career in 2015 and they go, dude, you're crazy. Like you're making 240 a year and like you work 20 years and you, you're almost executive. I'm right there, almost VP. 
They go, why would you do that? And it's like, because it didn't serve me anymore. Like I realized that I was chasing my own financial impact, but I was really serving a large corporation that didn't take care of its people anymore. So why do I want to do that anymore? So I decided to leave and, and really I took two years off and I didn't have a, a job. I just figured out what I wanted to do. And, I, and luckily I've built a, a way to be financially able to do that. But I didn't even know what I wanted to do at that point. I was like, man, how am I going to impact this world? That's what I really focus on. I'm, I'm in the legacy phase of my life. I'm not in the flex phase of my life. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do to impact this world. And for me, it all came back to, I like to teach. I've always been a coach. I've always been a mentor. People are always asking me advice on how to start and scale businesses and how to sell businesses because I've done all those. And so I said, that's what I need to do. That's what I love to do. I talk about cars and I talk about entrepreneurship. Those are the only two things I love. So why don't I go teach that and that can be my impact to the world. So yeah, I'm not feeding the homeless and doing things at different levels. I, I donate to those kind of things, but the way I'm best going to impact the world is to evolve and become the person that helps people find their confidence and their business principles, things I enjoy, things that people have always asked me for. So I don't have the underdog story because I've always tried to win. You know, I've always tried to win. I don't have like the sad stories and these things and all that. So I don't need that kind of marketing. It's like, dude, I always wanted to win. And I know there's a lot of people out there just like me who always wanted to win. And they've always had demonstrable results that they were always winning and, and improving. And those are the people that I want to attract into my group. Like I get the underdog stories and these things like that. Everybody counted me out, but you know, everybody gets counted out, right? Everybody does. Everybody gets underestimated. I don't think anyone's ever been overestimated. That's just weird, right? So I evolve. I become a better version of myself every day. I push. I have extreme levels of discipline on all regards because I was raised that way. And I teach people how I do that. You know, so that's that's what I'm doing with the 365 Driven and, and the society and the group, man. It's just uh, be willing to evolve. Be willing to change. Be willing to change your mind and be bold about it. That's That's the message I would leave with the listeners today. Cool, man. I love it. That's awesome. Cool, man. Well, Mr. Tony Wally, thank you for taking the time, man, and coming on the show. Hey, Irvin, it's been fun, man, and I can't wait to hang out again, brother. Oh, yeah, man. Have a good one. All right.